0: High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on HighTruths.com. To learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor, give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website, isaacone.org. oneorg I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Hello, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a settling episode. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. The United States has seen high-dollar financial lawsuit settlements from industries who lied about health worldwide tobacco use causes more than seven million deaths a year according to the world health organizations and in 1998 state governments were awarded 246 billion dollars in lawsuit tobacco money for that damage that's a lot of money but does that make up for the cost in loss of life we know that states awarded tobacco money used it on initiatives that had nothing to do with tobacco or mitigating tobacco damage now fast forward from tobacco to opioids today we're experiencing more than hundred thousand overdose deaths a year with the majority from opioids big pharma companies will be paying over 32 billion dollars for lying about harms of chronic and high dose prescription opioids that killed people will that money be spent on saving lives are lawsuits a deterrent for future public health lies or is lying about public health a good business model Is big marijuana following in the footsteps of big tobacco and big pharma in lying and hiding public health risks? In the meantime, what is the best use of opioid settlement dollars to make sure that that money is spent on saving lives? Lots of unanswered questions. And with that, let's hear our question of the day.
1: Hi, Dr. Lev, thank you for your advocacy and education. I'm especially thankful for giving voice to parents like me whose children died because of cannabis. My name is Michelle Leopold, and my son Trevor died chasing a higher high after becoming addicted to today's high potency THC. He thought he was taking a blue 30, but the oxycodone pill instead contained a lethal amount of the powerful opiate fentanyl. He will forever be 18 years old. States and counties are getting large sums of money from lawsuits against opioid pharma companies. Just this morning, seeing the newspaper headlines, my husband and I wondered how do we make sure these dollars go for drug treatment and prevention and not squandered on other projects like what happened with tobacco. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Michelle. I have a great expert to answer your question, Sarah Whaley. Sarah is a research faculty at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and is a program manager of the Bloomberg Overdose Prevention Initiative. She works on coordinating efforts that make sure opioid litigation dollars are distributed fairly and effectively. And you can find Sarah Whaley's bio on the High Truth show notes. Sarah, welcome to High Truths. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And I'm excited to have you as well. So let our High Truth listeners know a little bit about yourself. How did you become involved in the issue of opioid settlement dollars? That is
2: a great question and one I actually ask myself often, how did I get involved in this? Um, Because I'm not a lawyer. My background is in social work. I used to do direct service and I worked briefly with a county government. Then I got involved in public health research, specifically with people who use drugs in Baltimore. Um, And that's how I really got involved in an advocacy. I started a role with Johns Hopkins at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, working on a project called the Bloomberg Overdose Prevention Initiative. Um, And it was in this work, working, um, providing research and technical support to state governments that we started to get asked the question of how states should spend their opioid litigation dollars. Um, And that's how I got involved. That's how I started.
0: Interesting. So tell us about this initiative, the the Opioid Prevention Initiative.
2: Yeah. So we are funded by Bloomberg Philanthropies. We work in conjunction with um, a few other organizations in seven states across the country. So Our sole mission is to save lives from overdose, and we do that in a variety of ways. Our team at Hopkins provides research support, um, so evaluating programs and policies in states, and then we also provide technical assistance.
0: Interesting. Is the Pew Foundation part of that? Because I know that they've done some great work. Yep. We work with the Pew Charitable Trust Vital Strategies, the CDC and
2: CDC Foundation, and then the Global Health Advocacy Incubator.
0: All right, so some high-powered people working on the issues of opioids. Um, So give us a little background. All of a sudden, uh, there were some lawsuits. There's a lot of money going around. Can you give us a little bit of the the history about that, how much money, who gets it?
2: Yeah, so when we talk about the opioid settlements, we're actually talking about the litigation. It's over 3,000 different lawsuits brought by states, cities, counties, and municipalities, and also tribes against the opioid manufacturers, distributors, and retailers. Um, In the late 90s, we saw um, a lot of information about the misleading marketing and sales strategies of uh, prescription opioids to the public. Um, The first lawsuit was filed in around the late 90s against Purdue Pharma for their role. In the 2000s, more cities and states started to sign on. Um, One example is Kentucky. They filed a lawsuit around the predatory sales of prescription opioids in Appalachia. By the late 2010s, teens, more states were suing Purdue Pharma. There were cases against the pharmacies and that's when the distributors and other manufacturers came about. Um, now what we hear most often when we talk about the, the litigation is the MDL or the multi-district litigation, which is all of this lawsuits being brought together um, to help streamline the settlements. So the MDL is going to result in around $26 billion. And then collectively, all of the lawsuits, will see around $32 billion that's coming down to states, cities, counties, and municipalities.
0: That's a lot of money. But if we compare it to tobacco settlement, it's not that much money, right? Exactly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The tobacco settlements were $246 billion over 25 years, and we're seeing about $32 billion over 18 years. So just a fraction of that.
0: So Michelle Leopold is a mom, uh, an advocate, and unfortunately, her son Trevor died from a counterfeit OxyContin pill. It's also known as a blue M30, and the pill actually has oxy- that has no oxycodone on it. It just has fentanyl, and he died instantly. So she asks, hi, Truth, and I'm asking you um, on her behalf, um, how do we make sure that the beneficiaries of the opioid dollars are spending money on drug prevention and treatment and not squandering it on pet projects like what happened with tobacco?
2: Yeah, so to give a little bit of context to that with the tobacco litigation, the money went straight into most states general funds, so the dollars could go to anything, and it didn't necessarily go to tobacco um, cessation or prevention programs. And that's something that when we started to think about um, the the opioid litigation that we didn't want that to happen again. And so um, the team at Johns Hopkins, along with our partners, coordinated the principles for the use of funds from the opioid litigation um, to give states and localities a framework and a foundation to make sure that the dollars were used correctly
0: and and how is that working out?
2: So far it's been I think I'm I'm surprised by how well it's going. Um, we have seen the principles used uh, to help create legislation. So when we started this project maybe a year and a half ago, only a handful of states had passed legislation um, creating like a dedicated fund that the dollars went into rather than going into the general fund. Um, Now, I can excitedly say that a lot of states, and I would say most of them, have some kind of legislation or formal agreement creating a fund that protects the dollars.
0: So- The one good thing that I saw happen from tobacco settlement is the truth initiative is uh, Mm -hmm. there is uh, money going to prevention, primary prevention of tobacco use. And that was very successful that we had less people smoking, um, because of that. Is there something along that line, uh, you know, in going generally to prevent substance use disorders in, in this settlement? So not explicitly, the dollars are being handed down
2: to to states and then to localities. And there isn't, um, there's not explicit direction on like this chunk needs to go to prevention. There's a list called Exhibit E in the settlement that has some approved uses. I think there's nine approved uses or core strategies is the other term that they use. Um, And it outlines different approved uses. So it, it includes prevention, but doesn't explicitly say that this amount has to go towards that.
0: That's too bad. Because if there was like a national collective movement where the whole nation was on the same page in prevention, I think that would go along. Yeah, the truth initiative did a lot of really great work. Yeah. Um. So tell us about what is approved to be spent. What are some of those nine things?
2: Yeah, so there's a great resource on our website. I'm just going to do a quick plug for our website, opioidprinciples.jhsph.edu. And um, we kind of break down those approved uses. So the first one is um, naloxone expansion. Um, so expanding access to naloxone. There's a variety of ways to do that. So getting it to you know people who use drugs people who have contact with people who use drugs. So that can be family members, first responders, police, other community members. Um, So that's the first one. There's also ones around prevention, um, improving access to treatment in carceral settings, uh, providing treatment to pregnant and parenting people, Let's see. There's more expanding warm handoff programs. It's a pretty extensive list and hits kind of in all of the different areas on the spectrum of opioid use. Peer support. Peer support is on there. Harm reduction is on there. It's pretty encompassing.
0: Yeah. And our um, so you created principles, right? And 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 you have a coalition of people who created these principles of how to spend the money. Um, maybe just give us a little break, breakthrough of what those principles are, and then we can go.
2: Yes. So, the principles for the use of funds from the opioid litigation are five high level guiding process principles. So, they don't outline you should spend X amount of dollars on this program or this percentage of your litigation funds on this. Um, what the principles are are guidance to get states and localities thinking about. How to spend the dollars and what things should be in place before the dollars even come down. Um, so I'm just going to run through them really quickly. There's five of them. The first one is spend the money to save lives. So unlike tobacco, we want the opioid litigation dollars to go towards opioid abatement. So making sure the dollars are spent to save lives. Um, the second one is using evidence to guide spending. We have been in this crisis for a while, we have a breadth of research that shows what works and what doesn't work to help people who use drugs and so using these litigation dollars towards those programs the third one is investing in youth prevention so we know how important prevention is to get people to prevent people from starting to use drugs so we're not continuing to have more and more people addicted to opioids so this is a, a big focus for us. Um, the fourth one is to focus on racial equity. So there are communities that have been differentially impacted by um, policies and practices in this country um, related to drug use. And so in with this opportunity for money to invest in, in programs that can help kind of balance out how folks have been treated for their drug use. And then the fifth one is to develop a fair and transparent process. What we learned from the tobacco settlements is that the money went into the general fund and states spent it how they wanted to. There wasn't a lot of um, accountability. So we have encouraged states and local governments to create a process and to make it transparent um, and have it include people from from the community with lived experience, experts who know about drug use and addiction. Um, and and throughout the process, the funds are gonna be dispersed over 18 years to keep that public and transparent so that there can be these checks and balances. So those are the five principles, yeah. Those are solid, definitely solid. Um, we principles. had a lot of help in creating them. So we had folks from across the spectrum um, prevention specialists, uh, harm reductionists, people in the recovery community, addiction medicine specialists, kind of everyone that we knew and we got referred to people. And we, we know what we can do. And we also know that there's just so many people with so much experience and insight. And so that's kind of the principles have been this collective effort. Um, and they now have been endorsed by over 60 organizations across the country.
0: And they've been nationally recognized and yeah that's excellent now, what about um, so you created these principles, um, solid principles that you know there's a consensus effort to of organizations to follow, but are the three thousand beneficiaries of the settlements are they following that
2: So I would say some some are it's a lot of a lot of entities, right um, I think the biggest step is is that we've seen states enact uh, um, sorry, implement legislation, creating the fund. That's like the biggest one. The first step is like, are the dollars protected? Um, we've seen states like Maryland, who they were one of the first states to to pass a bill, creating a fund. They went back this past legislative session and introduced a new bill to create a council, um, an oversight council and advisory board. So we're seeing the principles pop up in different ways and states are taking different approaches. And that's kind of why we made the principles so broad and less prescriptive is because every locality is gonna have different needs and they approach budgeting and and politics in a different way. And so keeping it broad, um, I think allows the principles to be used in a way that is effective for each locality. Um, So lots of legislative funds, formal agreements, Um, North Carolina has a, a, they took a unique approach and created a formal agreement within the counties. So the counties are getting more of the money. um, And that's what works for them. So it's interesting to see how the principles are being interpreted and, and implemented across the country.
0: Now, can the money be used on, for example, all the money be used on one thing, so, for example, can they say all the money, we're going to spend it all on safe consumption sites, which is not quite evidence based Has anybody have done that or looking into that so
2: and I'll just preface by saying that um, the MDL funds like haven't been dispersed yet, the first round of funding as of today like hasn't gone out yet, so there haven't been we haven't really seen how the money is going to be spent. There's been a few like budgets proposed, um, but we don't actually know yet how anyone is going to spend the money. Um, I have not seen any examples of, of proposed budgets where all of the money that's coming down is going to go to a, a overdose prevention site. Um, I have talked to some localities that are interested in overdose prevention sites and. Principle two does outline using evidence to guide the spending and we there's a note in that principle that if there is a promising intervention, um, that I think it is an appropriate use of the litigation funds to be used towards a pilot or um research around a promising practice.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. I I, I see the whole issue of, of harm reduction going very broad and you know, and people say, "Okay, this is the latest thing. This is what we're gonna do without the science backing it up and and also the the science that measures the effectiveness, so like for example, the New York site is measuring how many you know how much trash they're getting out and how many overdoses reversals that they're having mm-hmm. but I don't think that that's the science. I mean, you will have you could collect all the Of course, you can have all those needles when you're, everybody's using in that one spot. That doesn't clean up the parks, right? Where you're still having needles, it doesn't mean that people are stopping to use everywhere else in the in in the area. And the other measurement that they're using. As well. Like, I think they said it in eight months. They had 157 overdose reversals in a place that's supervised. Well, of course, no one's going to die when there's someone right there giving you naloxone as you're using. But did that even have a dent in saving lives in that community? Or did it even have it worse? Did more people use because just using drugs is, is, is being normalized? Rather than connecting people to treatment, so I, I fear that someone has an interesting idea, and now that's taken up a science, and even their, the measurement that they're using, their success is not really evidence based. I don't know. I didn't. That's a loaded question for you. But I just <laughs> it's
2: so I think there's a lot to unpack in that, and you know, overdose prevention sites have been active across the world for thirty years. Um, And the outcomes that they study are different and complicated. Um, And so a lot of the research does look at the impact of things like overdose deaths that were prevented, um, the transmission rates of diseases like HIV or hepatitis C, the quality of life for people who use drugs, um, referrals to treatment, uh, and then like like you mentioned, crime and public nuisance. So those are the things that are typically studied um, or researched around overdose prevention centers. And the research that I've read, um, like you mentioned, there's been no fatal overdoses reported on site at an overdose prevention site, um, which I think is compelling if we're thinking about the root cause of, or the, the root of harm reduction is to keep people alive who are using drugs. You know, it's hard to say whether those people would have overdosed elsewhere, but there are people who are using drugs, so they are at risk of overdose.
0: Or that they would be reversed elsewhere, because that's what I see as an emergency physician, right? I, I see patients who come into the emergency department. They're there for an overdose. I'll ask them, well, how many times have you overdosed? Nine times, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't go to a safe consumption site. They, they were in a location. You don't yeah. have to go. It seems like it's counter the principle of meet people where you are, instead of saying meet people where they are, which would be have naloxone everywhere, there's possible drug use. Um, you're saying, come here, use with me. It's it's the opposite of meet people where you are. You're telling people to come to where you want them to be.
2: Yeah. So I think, I mean, as a person who doesn't use drugs, it's hard for me to speak to their experience. Um, but I can tell you like some of the things I've heard. and And I think especially in the pandemic where people were feeling isolated, um, people may use alone and may not have someone around to revive them. And so maybe the overdose prevention center is a safe place to go. Or maybe people are using in abandoned buildings or on street corners, and maybe they're using together. But what overdose prevention centers also offer other than just You know, supervised staff to revive them is also, you know, drug checking um, or safe supplies. So it's kind of this, it's a holistic approach that offers access to a lot of these things that are sometimes hard to come by. And I know particularly people who are unhoused, that's a hard population to access. And as someone who did outreach, like, you know, we, we were able to meet those people where they were, but not everyone we could find. You know, we had zones that we went to. And so having a space, a designated space where these people can maybe use drugs, but maybe also, you know, pick up safe supplies or um, get treatment from a nurse for an abscess Um, having access to all of these services in one place is also a a benefit of of these centers.
0: How does that, okay, so it's really hard for me as an emergency physician Mm -hmm. to see money, because we're talking about money, going to that. When Mm -hmm. I see patients who have an infinite number of places where they can use drugs. But yet when I have patients, and this is every day, multiple people who want to get sober, there's no place for them. So I say, how are we spending money to to build places for people to use drugs when there are lots of places where they're using drugs? We could make those places safer, right? All the shelters, all the sober living facilities. We can install, you know, naloxone and make all those places safer. Um, but yet we have no places to go when I, I, it's just heartbreaking. When I have patients mm-hmm. who have overdosed, they're almost dead and there's no place for me to send them. Yeah, I could I, just say, I, oh, I, instead I'd say, oh, we'll use it over here. That, well, it just well, doesn't yeah. make sense. I think it's it's
2: part of this holistic picture, right? And it's, I think as personally someone who sees the benefit of overdose prevention sites I think I think there's also an important uh, focus on on treating all or having access to services across the spectrum so people who are using and are ready for treatment making sure that they have access to treatment and that's a piece but they don't and, and no i'm hearing you and 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 i agree i think more treatment is necessary but not everyone is ready for treatment and so these these harm reduction services ensure that people stay alive long enough to get to that place where they want treatment and yes there is also a need for more treatment and a variety of treatment options Um, And that's also a great use of opioid settlement funds. And one of the approved uses is, you know, expanding access to MOUD, um, warm handoff programs, peer support, all of those are pieces to this puzzle. And all of those together is going to be what investment in all of those areas is going to be how we reverse this crisis. It's not going to be singularly any of these things we've got to think about it as a whole picture.
0: I I, I agree with you. I agree with, uh, of course, saving lives from people who are using, I, I guess, don't agree with that methodology is it's not evidence-based and, and it's spending a lot of money. It's cost-intensive where there's such a big need on the other end. And You know, I would rather promote increased syringe exchange, right? Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. evidence based, and you can add more, you know, connection to treatment, and 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 I mean, that's that's science, that's evidence based. um, I think communities are going to have to see what what works for them,
2: and I think in this country specifically, like overdose prevention sites are not common, right? We have two in operation, and then two others, like maybe in in Rhode Island and Philadelphia. So it's it's not something that I think is a a popular opinion. And if funds can be used to support existing harm reduction programs um, and existing treatment programs and expanding those, I think that's a great investment as well.
0: I I agree with you, but the problem that I see is... Just an, a, a natural American problem that I see, uh, with a, a lot of things is you have two sites and then now that is the standard of care. That's the gold standard, even though it's pilot project and the data is not even out and we haven't even measured the right things. Um, I'm in California. They're like, okay, we got to get one of those. You know, we got to make that all over the place. Mm-hmm. San Francisco, LA and, and, and missing, missing the big picture that this is not going to save total lives it you know it, it may help some people on one small cohort and at the same time if dollars are spent there they're missing the big picture in what prevents deaths in the first place right um and and you're right it takes a holistic approach and uh and uh, we've talked a lot about that. Tell us about <laughs> tell us a lot about other key initiatives from the opioid initiative that that you're excited about that that uh, are being worked on.
2: Yeah. So the the Bloomberg Overdose Prevention Initiative. We work in seven states, um, primarily. Do a little bit of work elsewhere, but primarily in seven states. Which
0: are the seven?
2: Um, the states are. Um, let me go down the line: Pennsylvania and Michigan, Wisconsin. New Mexico, Kentucky, North Carolina, New Jersey. That's Evan. (laughs) Um, And there's been some really cool initiatives that have come out of of our work there and that our research team has gotten to look at. Um, New Jersey had an initiative where they expanded MOUD access in carceral settings. So that was a a really cool initiative to be part of. Um, They also during the pandemic had um, a prisoner release initiative where they um, uh, reduced their prison population by releasing folks um, with lesser nonviolent crimes. Um, and so we are in process of studying kind of the impact of that, um, particularly the folks that in, in that that use drugs. Um, so that's been cool to see. Uh, we did, an evaluation of um, a bup initiation on on ambulances in Buprenorphine. Yeah. So um, we've had, we got to work on a pretty cool project in Pennsylvania working with um, buprenorphine equipped ambulances. So, as you were mentioning about meeting people where they were or where they are, if someone has experienced an overdose. Um, And first responders come out to revive them or to treat them following their overdose. Um, Having a prescription for buprenorphine on the ambulance allows them to have a discussion with the individual, ask them if they're interested in in treatment. And if they are, they have that treatment right there. They don't have to try to find a provider later. Um, They don't get a referral. They just get treatment right away, um, which is very, very
0: cool. That is cool. And actually, we had them on this podcast. So if people are interested, they can listen to the episode with Martha Waller and Tara Tucker talk about that experience. Um, there are a lot of challenges, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, again, the, the problem is people think of that's a great idea. It's like, OK, let's everybody do it. But you really have to understand it, um, yep. and understand that- the pinf- pitfalls, because it was not easy Um and they had a lot of motivation to get it done. So to, to translate that to all the communities is, is, uh, would be uh, challenging. And that's one of the cool
2: parts of the research that we do is a lot of times um, we do mixed method studies, meaning so we look at outcome data, but we also can do qualitative in- interviews with the folks that are implementing these interventions and learn about what some barriers were, what was really helpful, what would you want someone else who is doing this to know? And then we can share that wealth of knowledge with other people who might be interested in that kind of program. So rather than all these programs starting from scratch, we can share what the folks in Pennsylvania learned or in the New Jersey um, MOUD expansion in jails, like what did they learn and how can that help other programs who are thinking about doing similar things?
0: have has there been things that you learned that okay this doesn't work because sometimes you learn the best also from things that don't work out
2: um that's a really good question um i think there are things that have been harder and maybe less the the outcomes that we thought were different and i think that happens a lot in research as you go in thinking okay this is going to have a direct impact on this thing um but sometimes that's not what you find. Um, so an example of that is we worked with a hospital system who was implementing a learning action network, um, in their hospital system. So connecting the different hospitals around, um, MOUD and it was difficult and, and, you know, it was during the pandemic. So hospital staff were stretched really thin and had different priorities. Um, and, that was something that we weren't obviously expecting COVID to happen. Um, But I think we learned a lot and sometimes failures are the way that you learn. Um, And so expecting that and, and, you know, we still learned things from
0: it is not what we thought. So. So this was a program where you tried to get hospitals to implement MOUD, which is medications for opiate use disorder. Yep. And this learning action
2: network was like, you know, peer learning, right? So the hospitals, um, there are rural hospitals and there's urban hospitals and they have different resources. And, you know, maybe some were able to bring in peer counselors. And, you know, what was that experience? So allowing them an opportunity to share with one another about the things that were happening and the things that they were learning um, in this implementation process.
0: That's interesting. And do you have like a favorite project or what would you... Really encourage communities to do from from your experience? Um,
2: a favorite project. I personally just I think because of my background um, in working directly with people who use drugs, I think the the projects I've liked most are the ones where we have an opportunity to talk to the clients of these programs or to individuals who use drugs and to find out, you know, what they think, what their experiences have been because Um, As researchers, as policymakers, you know, we might have ideas about what what works or, you know, we're like, oh, this sounds like a great idea. But for the people who are actually going to use the service um, or the program, I think it's great to have insights there and to hear from them about what works, what the barriers were from from their perspective. So those are my favorite projects.
0: Yeah. And what, what was a, um, one of the top solutions for them that they said worked for them?
2: Yeah. So we did a project during COVID um, to, we talked to folks who use drugs to find out kind of how the pandemic impacted their drug use and their ability to access services. And I think we heard a lot about um, how telehealth was really helpful and how when people were isolating at home um, social distancing, they weren't able to access um, their their programs or go to meetings the way that they used to. And to hear about how the programs adapted to meet the needs of their clients were really cool and how how well that worked for clients. And I think it's just always really awesome to hear about um, the ingenuity of programs and the resiliency of people.
0: That is true. Um, but that's surprising to me because I guess my clientele is different, like, because you would need to have a phone and yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Different populations and definitely access to, to technology, depending on who the person is, um, income level and, and housing security is a big, um, factor in that. Um, and it's a struggle for a lot of people. Um, and you know, telehealth is one option, but there were also other really cool ways um, that programs found their way to still deliver services. So we heard about folks who, you know, would go to an outreach center or um, traditionally would go, you know, to to a syringe service program. And during the pandemic, they couldn't go. And so the the programs were delivering supplies to them, which I thought was an awesome way to to overcome that obstacle.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess that's actually a beautiful thing that we see from the pandemic is different innovations and and ways of continuing your job, and not just in substance use disorder, but in in the world at large. Mm-hmm. And um, some of these creative solutions make us overall better, and will sustain even after the pandemic, right? Yep. Yep, like and I doing, think like doing a Zoom podcast, like how exactly, cool yeah. <laughs> Um, so that's really nice. So, what if people are listening and they want to know, you know, thirty-two billion dollars? Is my community going to do something? Is my state? Is there a way for people to find out if, um, if there are funds uh, coming their way for issue of drugs? Yeah. So, folks,
2: there's lots of resources online. Um, I would check your state attorneys general's uh, website to see if there's, you know, a press release or some. Some states have their own dedicated website now. Florida has one, North Carolina has one. Um, there's also two websites um, that are tracking this. So opioidsettlementtracker.com and nationalopioidsettlement.com, I think is what it's called. And you can go and check those out and click your state um, and then find out if your your county or city was was also part of the settlement. Um, So in that MDL, states and counties or states signed on and then tried to recruit the counties to also sign on to the settlement as well. So some did, some didn't. So finding out kind of which entities um, did, you can use those two websites.
0: That's great. And Sarah, you'll give us that information. So I'll put that in the show notes so people can refer to that. Yep. And last big loaded question for you, ready? Yeah. <laughs> uh, since we've had such a uh, interesting conversation. Um, but big tobacco, you know, um, lies about harms, um, you know, saying that it's healthy and then big time dollars in lawsuits. And then big pharma, uh, saying, you know, uh, opioid prescriptions, um, you know, nobody gets addicted. There are some lies and now some lawsuits. What do you think we're going to be seeing with big marijuana, you know, now with all the various health claims and and some lies um, and uh, future dollars and lawsuits? That's kind of my prediction. Yeah, I will
2: preface by saying I'm not a lawyer and I'm also not a cannabis researcher. But I think that the legal system in this country is meant for checks and balances, right? And to hold entities. That are in violation of the rights of people um, to hold them accountable. So, when powerful corporations, whether that's big tobacco, big pharma, big cannabis, um, if they put the health and well being of people at risk for their profits, um, and that can be misleading health information, different things, right, that we've seen um, in these two lawsuits, if that happens, I think it is completely within reason to assume that this could happen again. Um,
0: So that's, (laughs) that's, that's well said, very well said. And I just kind of threw that at you. Um, And, uh, and I agree. And the question is, because you're a researcher, you're looking at this, you're looking at history, tobacco, you're looking at current events, opioids and future, because we could see this coming up with, Mm -hmm. with cannabis are the is this even a deterrent? Is, is are these lawsuits a public health deterrent or is it a, actually a good business model? We're just going to milk it for as many billions as we can and yeah, we'll get sued eventually and we'll pay it off, but guess what? We made a, a lot of money in the meantime. And, and I mean and that's still yeah. Money.
2: That I mean that's a great question because what we're seeing with these opioid lawsuits is like 32 billion dollars is seems like a lot of money to me, um but in the grand scheme of what these opioid companies made drop in the bucket right and the cost to states um you know for the health costs and loss of productivity and all of these other things 32 billion dollars also is a drop in the bucket so um you know will will it impact other big corporations or you know will it is it like you said just a part of the business i think that comes down to advocacy and lawsuits are one part of that but i think community advocacy and information around these different public health crises is going to be an important piece of that um we have collective power and voice in in Saying what we expect from corporations um, and how they treat us as consumers
0: right that's um that's good, and i and I hope that that happens. You're a big part of that, Sarah, because you bring the data. And the science, and we hopefully use that kind of information in making these decisions and holding people accountable and for advocacy. So thank you for doing that. I want to thank Michelle Leopold, um, for her, for her questions and for her advocacy. She advocates on the, the harms of marijuana because her son overdosed on fentanyl, but, but his, uh, life in, and journey into drugs started with cannabis as most people, if I, I talk to every single person who I see in the emergency department who has an overdose, I ask them about their journey to drugs and 100% of them started with cannabis at a young age. Age. So I definitely see that. And so thank you, uh, Michelle, for, for speaking out. And may the memory, and I know the memory of Trevor will be a blessing because of the work that you're doing. And, and Sarah, uh, thank you so much. I mean, you have a great job um, um, working with with a population that, that you like and have feeling for I I can can tell you're passionate about this work as many people are who work in the issue of substance use disorder and your research and and mission is so important so I, I thank you for that and wish you the best with it
2: thank you and thank you for all you do
0: thank you for listening to high truths on drugs and addiction where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor, a sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaac1.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org to view their medical library, translated for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.